All right, all right. It is time for the Cavaliers podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus, and I'm Chris Cervella. The Cavaliers podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is America's premier shipbuilder and is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise, the largest in the Department of Defense. HII delivers the all-domain advantage. Coming up, we heard a lot of speakers at the Surface Navy Association's three-day symposium earlier in January. Now we give you the chance to hear some of what we heard. The press briefing excerpts from the U.S. Navy's top speakers, including Navy Secretary Del Toro and Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Mike Gilday. But first, a look at this week's naval news. South Africa announced January 19th that it will host warships from the Chinese and Russian navies for maritime exercises running from February 17th through the 27th. The Masi exercises will take place in and around Durban and Richards Bay. The South African Ministry of Defense noted it's the second such exercise after similar maneuvers in November 2019 between the three countries in Cape Town. South Africa said the exercises were, quote, a means to strengthen the already flourishing relations between South Africa, Russia, and China. Media attention was raised January 18th with the release of a U.S. Coast Guard video showing a Russian intelligence ship operating near Hawaiian waters. Although the Project 864 Vishnaya-class intelligence ship Karalia is a well-known Russian spy ship that has previously operated near Hawaii, the Coast Guard caption was inexplicably enigmatic, saying the ship was, quote, believed to be an intelligence-gathering ship. But the video showed the Karalia wearing her pennant number, SSV-335, and included a close-up of the name of the Russian naval oiler refueling the ship, the Pechenga. Intelligence ships and aircraft from Russia, China, the U.S., and other countries routinely monitor each other's military activities, usually from international waters and airspace. U.S. Navy and Coast Guard forces of the U.S. Fifth Fleet and the Bahrain Defense Force are engaged in Exercise Neon Defender, an annual interoperability exercise carried out in the Persian Gulf. This year's bilateral exercise began January 15th, jointly directed by Bahrain and U.S. Naval Forces Central Command, headquartered in Bahrain. Later this year, the littoral combat ship USS Indianapolis is expected to make the second LCS deployment to the U.S. 5th Fleet. Navy leaders said the ship will also operate in U.S. 6th Fleet in the Mediterranean. The commanding officers of two U.S. Navy ships were relieved this week with the announcements made back-to-back on January 19th. Captain Michael Nordine of the amphibious ship USS Mesa Verde and Commander Alexa Jenkins of Destroyer Kearney were each cited by reviewing officers for lack of confidence in their ability to command. While both ships are based on the U.S. East Coast, it is unusual for two officers to have been relieved at virtually the same time, and the Navy rarely provides details as to what specifically leads to the relief of a commanding officer. In new ship news, the oiler Earl Warren, TAO-207, was christened January 21st at GD NASCO's San Diego shipyard. The ship was launched into the water last October 28th, but without full ceremony. Named for the former Supreme Court Chief Justice and sponsored by current Justice Elena Kagan, the Earl Warren is the third ship of the John L. Lewis class of fleet oilers. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. Well, folks, you know, the last few podcasts were recorded in anticipation of 
and during the recently concluded Service Navy Association's annual symposium in Crystal City, Virginia. A number of leaders addressed at the uh, symposium and also held press briefings where they often provide more details of what they presented to the larger audience. We're gonna present some key remarks now from some of those pressers, starting with Navy Secretary Carlos del Toro. Please bear with the background noise. All these remarks were recorded in busy spaces and some are noisier than others. Gives you that live you were there feeling, I think. Secretary del Toro talked about shipbuilding capacity and whether the solution is more and more government funding. In this clip, he also talks about the pressure he's putting on industry to keep the cost and schedule. Solution can't just be us throwing money at industry, right? And the money that we do make available for workforce development has to be carefully laid out. And so we pay attention to the how the money is actually being spent to ensure that it's being spent effectively, efficiently. There are metrics and data that actually support uh, hopefully the, the results that get returned on that American investment. So that part is very, very strong. And we're going to be watching that very, very closely as well, too, to see how it actually makes a difference in the amount of time that a submarine is in an availability, for example, before it can get out, right? The amount of time that it actually takes to construct a Virginia-class submarine, right? Uh, or a Constellation-class frigate or anything else. So how the money is spent is equally important as how much is being spent as well, too. There's also a responsibility on the part of the industry to do their part, right? So industry is, actually has a healthy pipeline net right now when it comes to shipbuilding. And we've heard it's about $32 billion this year. It's up from about $27.5 billion last year. That's a hefty investment. And actually, the shipbuilding plan, as you look at the shipbuilding plan and you look at the first 10 to 15 years of the shipbuilding plan, it's pretty consistent across all three options. And so they have a very clear message of what the Department of the Navy actually wants to do in the next 10 to 15 years and should be able to plan according to that. I think the challenge, perhaps goes beyond your question, Megan, the challenge that the nation faces is actually the labor shortage that we have. Right? So it has to get to legal immigration, increasing legal immigration, increasing work visa programs so that we can get more blue collar work into the shipyards. It's sometimes hard to compete with Chick-fil-A when they're offering 15 to 17 bucks an hour. It's been really tough on the industry. You just may not have seen it, but I've been really tough. I've met with all the major CEOs, not just a large company, but many medium-sized company, and I'm holding them to account basically for ensuring that the aircraft, the submarines, the ships that they're building actually deliver on time. And I want complete transparency with them. So if they're having a problem set on their side, I don't want to just hear about it at the you know the final hour. I want to hear about it as these problems develop. And if we're the cause of some of the problems, fine. Let's talk about them. Let's try to fix them early on so that we can deliver out on time. The other thing that I've been very clear about with the CEOs and heads of industries is that they need to control requirements creep as much as I control requirements creep. And I've met with my entire acquisition workforce and I meet with them regularly on a quarterly basis basically to ensure that we temper our requirements creep. If there's some sort of requirements, some sort of new technology that comes along that's truly transformational about how we fight wars, fine, maybe we'll consider that. If not, then it needs to go into block one, block two, or block three so that we can deliver ships on time. I gotta keep Columbia on, on track, I gotta keep um, Constellation on track as well too, along with trying to get our Virginia-class submarines built on a faster scale. Um, you know, there's real challenges there on the submarine base. You know, we're we're not building, we're not at two uh, boats per year, yeah. and in and the shipbuilding side of the house, we're not at three uh, per year either. So there's a lot of work to be done on the part of industry to reinvest perhaps some of their own profits into their own, you know, capital markets into the industries to try to you know, build those capabilities internally to the company that I have no, you know, 
responsibility over or call, you know, that's that's for them to decide what to do uh, so that they can actually get these ships, these submarines, these aircraft built on time. In his address to the symposium, Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Mike Gilday also addressed the shipbuilding capacity issue, and he does here with the press. We have what we have with respect to new construction shipyards, right? As I mentioned, we have the seven, and I think we need to keep them as we need to keep them at max capacity. It goes back to, you know, we have a we have an aging fleet, right? Uh, and it's time to reinvest in the United States Navy, a larger, more capable, more lethal fleet. And so, I think that Congress is sending a very good message with respect to uh, our shipbuilding budget in terms of where we need to go um, to keep those shipyards at, at max capacity. And as I, as I explained up on stage, conversely on the repair side, uh, I think that if, if we get, uh, uh, if we can uh, have a steady, reliable, predictable uh, estimate of what we need to build, it gives us a better understanding of what that battle force is going to look like in total as we retire ships on time. Uh, and that gives the repair side better insights in terms of what uh, what capacity is required. Right now that's been, as I described, a bit uneven uh, based on based on top line fluctuation. And just a quick follow-up, so do you see capacity, do you think the industrial base is at capacity right now for shipbuilding? Or do you think there's more that they can squeeze in? So that that's a question that only they can answer. Uh, so all I can tell you is right now uh, I see them a little bit behind on some of our production lines. And so they would tell you, as I think that they have uh, to some of you, uh, that they can do more. And so my message to them is prove it. So the, the Congress has been very bullish on shipbuilding. I think they've been very clear in terms of what their expectations are. If I would take uh, their messaging with respect to the $31.5 billion, right, uh, above uh, $4 billion above what we asked for in the budget proposal, so I would put that into alternative three in the shipbuilding plan, which uh, which requires three to five percent in terms of put us on a better, a healthier glide slope to get to three fifty five. The CNO also discussed Arctic and transpolar operations, an increasing factor in potential confrontations with Russia. Uh, if we take a look at Sweden and Finland as an example, on the verge of. Uh, joining the alliance. As we relook Iceland's strategic, uh, geostrategic position, right, we no longer just think of uh, transatlantic uh, security concerns. We now begin to think about transpolar, right, and that over time uh, the, trade, uh, the, 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 the trade routes between Asia and Europe are going to fundamentally change. And so that's going to drive, because the Navy does what it does in terms of keeping, uh, keeping the sea lanes open, uh, ensuring that trade uh, can flow freely, fl uh, both goods and information under and on the sea, um, that I think uh, you're going to see more uh, NATO activity up there, joint activity up there in the Arctic. I think we continue to learn about what kit we need uh, uh, to operate up there. We have a pretty good sense, so I don't see any, any huge changes in terms of what we need uh, on our ships right now to be able to operate in that environment. Um, but the more we operate up there, the more we learn. Commander of Fleet Forces Command Admiral Darrell Caudill spoke about one of his top priorities, fleet maintenance. Like other Navy leaders, he bemoaned constant maintenance schedule delays and the difficulty of keeping ships in fighting condition. He also listed people and manning concerns and worries about getting enough ordnance to stock ship magazines. It was a noisy environment, but bear with it. Number one is, you heard it in here in my remarks, is, is, is shipyard. 
shipyard maintenance and the challenges we have with just uh, ship maintenance and new construction delays are to me the most significant problem the Navy faces. It is at the center of the Venn diagrams of every one of my problems. As I, if I get ships out of the maintenance period on time and deliver the ships I'm paying for on time, then the size of the Navy just gets larger by that very nature. I'll give you, a, this is a submarine example. Um, the class maintenance plan for the submarine force is supposed to have 20% of the fast attacks in deep maintenance. It's about 50 fast attack submarines. So 20% is 10 submarines. Right now I have 19 submarines that are in, that are either in dry docks, in availabilities, or sitting pierside because their haul expiration has been met and can't go into the yard because I don't have dry docks. So imagine if I was on time, my submarine force would be nine ships larger. That is a significant number, okay? I pay for, you heard the two per year Joe Courtney in there, right? I pay for two. On average, I'm getting 1.2. So in five years, instead of delivering 10 fast attack submarines, I got six. So where's the other four? So my force was already four submarines short. So the whole idea of what we're doing with this One Atlantic is systemically because of the fact that my force structure has been reduced because I'm not delivering. So I am 100% behind doing whatever it takes to get shipyard and depot and pier side maintenance improved. That's number one. The second thing is people, okay? We have got to invest completely in our people. If I want to flow ships to the point of need, they have to be manned. Okay, they have to have the crew side necessary to do that. So the readiness accounts to buy human beings have to be completely topped off. Okay, some of our communities do this, some do not. The Surface Navy has been in a force that has not paid for the full readiness account when it comes from people. They need to. I mentioned about the ordinance in there and you heard a lot about what I said there. We pay again for a lot of ordinance and we are not getting those deliveries on time. Again, I have to manage that very carefully. So if I want to push all of my force that I have today, again, tied to the 75 mission-capable ships, if I wanted to do that, their magazines wouldn't all be full. So even though Roy Kitcher's doing a great job getting that ship ready, it won't go with fully loaded, fully loaded out. Does that make sense? Yes. So unless I get the loadouts of these critical ordnance. Now, we war game a lot. So we go up to Newport and we do things all, all the time. But we do specifically very large-scale exercises in these very high-end war games in Newport. We have a deep understanding at classified levels of exactly the type of ordnance that I need. So not every missile system, not everything that I can buy in that, in that uh, purchase is equally weighted toward winning the fights we want to win. So our, our in industrial base knows what we need most of for the high-end fights. So I want to prioritize making sure those stay on track, right? And it may come at the expense of other type of ordinance. Marine Brigadier General Marcus Steroid Adabali, Director of Expeditionary Warfare OpNav N95, described the Corps' current vision of the light amphibious warfare ship or law now under development. In his answer, he also referred to the ship as a medium landing ship or LSM, the designation the craft is likely to have when it enters production. So the CNO says initial capacity goal of 18. The study in the Marine Corps red line is 35 or a mix of craft between 18 and 35 that could be complementary. So the initial inventory for the light amphibious warship program, which will deliver the medium landing ship or LSM class of ships will be 18. 
but as we field this craft, we may have ideas as we um, use it in the Pacific or with our formations that our lessons learned, how we want to perhaps in the future iterate on it, or there may be other types of craft. Marine Corps, for example, is experimenting with a stern gate landing vessel that they've contracted that's being um, developed. We're going to contract three of those, and I think that is not necessarily the same craft uh, that the LSM is going to be. So as we field those mix of craft, there may be other opportunities. So to summarize, the CNO's capacity goal is 18, the Commandant's red line is 35, but there's a study that says that a mix of craft with the light amphibious warship uh, and a blend of other craft that do not exist right now uh, could could uh, complement those capabilities. Rear Admiral Fred Pyle, Director of Surface Warfare OpNav N96, joined Brigadier General Anavali to talk about the Navy's plans for the littoral combat ship. Congress in the Defense Authorization Act passed in December has mandated that the Navy declare its plans for the future of the LCS, a report that's due on January 27th. Without making promises in advance of the congressional notice, Pyle and Anabali discussed the Surface Warfare or SUW mission package and the MCM Mine Countermeasures package for the LCS, in addition to the NSM Naval Strike Missile. They also talked about plans to forward base Independence Class LCSs in Bahrain by 2025 and to Pacific Command in 2027. Pre-decisional for me to, uh, sure. to say anything in this memo, but I can tell you uh, from a surface warfare perspective um, what we've done to date and where we're going. So your six LCS Freedom Class with the SUW mission package, 15 LCS with the MCM mission package and my uh, my battle buddy in uh, in 95. Um, for the platform, we will continue to remain committed to survivability and lethality uh, to get the NSM missile on the on all the platforms. Um, so we make that ship more lethal. NSM on, on the Freedom Class as well. Yes. And then um, where we're going is we're uh, we're looking at um, the discussion of motherships, right? Um, and let me be clear, I'm not proposing that LCS is a mothership, but we're looking across, when we talk on man Megan, um, we're looking across the force of what is the right mix? And these are these are requirements we need to work through, and, uh, and, and we need to determine what is the right fit. And uh, Steroid, if you've got any uh, any comments from, a, from an MCM mission package. Well, just, I would say that, uh you know, first of all, you heard everything I said earlier with the mission package being on profile to deliver to the warfighter. Um, and you heard my comments about motherships, and you know, I would ask what, how that is defined, but I think personally that the independence class MCM mission package with all the unmanned systems that are uh, tethered to it is an example of a mini mothership. So as we kind of talk about that vernacular in the building and in the beltway, I think that's a prime example of, of what that is. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we're partnering, and this is probably the space that N95 and N96, Admiral Pyle and I partner on very closely. Um, and uh, I wouldn't say it's uh, uh, completely uh, perfect, uh, but it is tracking well. And I think we're on the cusp of declaring initial operational capability uh, for, for that. The MCM package. For the MCM uh, mission package program of record. There are other additive capabilities sure. that will be um, bundled in 
introduced to that mission package too that are growing, but the, the program of record we're very close to. No red flags at this time. So the, MC, the, the LCS is supposed to go to Bahrain now. Well, I'm a little confused. So the the plan right now, and it could change depending on combatant commander, warfighter requirements, but the program, the, the delivery uh, right now is 2025 to uh, CENTCOM and 2027 to PACOM. So in 2025, you're looking for two independence-class ships with MCM? Independence-class MCM. So not freedoms, and not Independence LCS is the program. Independence-class freedoms, okay. And, and the, the, but, but the follow-up for that is, um, is, is the motherships. Is ESB part of that mix? ESBs are being looked at for those kinds of capabilities. But there is no requirement for motherships. There's no firm requirement for motherships. In, in essence, that's sort of what an ESB it's, is. Well, Chris, what I'll say is we're I think it's a... I, go ahead. We're, we're going to broaden our aperture very wide to look at all options, all options on the table for What's the what's the art of the possible for motherships? Um, so we want to expand that as we as we go down this path. And then we'll but wrap up. Sorry, sorry. Uh, just one reattack. Um, uh, again, I, I won't presuppose what's going to be in that report, but the narrative will be. I'm, I'm pretty confident is that littoral combat ship class has two mission sets, SUW and MCM. Sure. And uh, and that that is the path forward. And as you've just heard. Navy remarks at the symposium focused on shipbuilding capacity, ship maintenance, and some specifics about individual ship programs. We hope to hear more about all those programs in April at the Navy League's Sea, Air, Space Exposition. Now hear this. Now hear this. And now Mr. Cervello with some thoughts about the latest commanding officer firings. As we mentioned at the top of the show, the Navy fired two commanding officers this week announcing them in dual press releases put out on the same day. In both cases, Navy officials said the decisions were a result of poor performance and not due to personal misconduct. I'll say up front that I know Alexa Jenkins very well. My heart breaks for her, for her family, and for her crew. I first met Alexa when she was a Lieutenant JG on board USS Fort McHenry. Command was something she aspired to even at that early rank. I was extremely happy when she was selected for early command and was again overjoyed when she became the commanding officer of Kearney just last year. I have no doubt that with the right mentorship and support, she could have overcome whatever issues she encountered during the ship's basic training phase and would have been an excellent deployment CO. Sadly, the Navy will never get to see her true command potential. I don't know Captain Michael Nordine, the recently relieved CO of USS Mesa Verde. But my heart breaks for him, his family, and his sailors as well. A prior enlisted soldier, West Point graduate, and career naval aviator with six air medals, including one for combat heroism and a separate Navy commendation medal for battlefield valor. Nordine was selected for the Nuke Power Program, was a former executive officer of USS George Washington, and by all accounts was a superstar destined for more success but apparently he had communication issues with his crew and according to press reports, needed to go. Whether you know these leaders or not, whether there is more to the story than was publicly released, a reasonable person has to conclude that our Navy is less prepared and less ready for a fight without people like them leading sailors and deterring conflict. 
Every time the Navy fires an 05 or 06, I can't help but wonder if the system did everything it could to help those commanding officers succeed. The Navy prides itself on holding commanding officers accountable, but can it be equally proud of providing the support a leader needs when they struggle or make mistakes? In the case of Jenkins and Nordeen, did their chains of command send along extra support, make personal attempts to mentor, bring in help from leadership school or the afloat training group? Or was the relief the easiest lever to pull when they received heat for the screw-ups of their subordinates? My concern in uniform as it is now is that when good people struggle with situations that are new to them, their leadership is unable to help them overcome these challenges and simply decides to toss their careers overboard rather than put in the needed time and effort to bring them up to speed. Look, I recognize there are going to be many listeners that disagree with me, and they'll say, hey, so goes the life of a commanding officer. I'm just not so sure that approach works with today's leaders or the people that look up to them. And I'm even less confident that the Navy's command bench is deep enough to toss aside COs at the first or second sign of professional trouble. Whenever a ship or aircraft has a major accident, hours go into investigating what went wrong, who's to blame, and how the organization should get better. I would argue the career of a commanding officer is at least as valuable as an expensive warship, and the same care and diligence should be taken to understand why our leaders fall short. The men and women that take command of our ship squadrons and installations are the best the Navy and nation have to offer. They work and sacrifice for decades to take on these important roles and deserve the best the organization can provide them. I believe the chain of command exists to support these leaders, not the other way around as is so often the case. If the Navy's leaders in Mayport, Norfolk, and Washington aren't racking their brains and beating themselves up over why their commanding officers failed, then they are not only negligent in their duties, but are missing a huge chance to make the organization better. Thanks, Chris. Well, folks, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavish. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Thank <laughs> you.